This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. Well, good news for all, most of all for me, we have uh, tracked down Anya Kamenetz, uh, the author of the book The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. Now, uh, Anya is an education correspondent for NPR. She's contributed to the New York Times, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, a whole bunch of other publications. She's won many awards for her reporting on uh, education, technology, and uh, innovation. She's written some other books before. But uh, this book, The Stolen Year, is really fascinating. It's not only fascinating because it's so current and deals with an issue that I think a lot of people feel pretty strongly about, but it's really so interesting because of the way that it blends data and analysis and uh, statistically looking at what happened in the country economically, culturally, in every different aspect of life with profiles of individual people and individual families. So it kind of puts a human face on some of the the numbers. And uh, you realize that when we talk about uh, this statistic or that statistic, there are people behind those statistics. So I'm just thrilled to welcome uh, Anya Kamenetz uh, back, well, not back, but to our show. Anya, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So um, I guess the big question and the big complaint that a lot of parents had during COVID, particularly parents that were concerned about uh, child care, but this was also a complaint that was echoed by a lot of teachers and administrators and certainly a lot of students, was um, did we did we have to do this? Um, a lot of folks that were in um, public health positions at the time, they said that this was the best way to contain the spread and to stop the spread and not have children and teachers be in um, quarters that weren't equipped to handle a, uh, a very, very tough disease like this. Based on your research, did we do the right thing in closing down schools? So schools shut down all over the world, and for the most part in the spring of 2020, that was not a controversial decision. So, Frank, what I'm really questioning in the book is our decision to leave them closed and leave so many kids home for such a long time, which really was unique in the United States. We really resembled more developing countries, you know, countries like the Philippines, like India, that are just now getting their kids back in school. We weren't quite that bad, but in our blue states, we had you know, more than half of our kids home through the spring of 2021. And I don't think that was necessary. I think that if you look at our peer countries in Europe, even when they had pretty bad surges of this virus, they prioritized schools and they did what it took to keep schools open safely. And in our country, in red states, you know, they didn't always follow the same safety protocols, but they did take the risk to keep schools open. And even though, you know, they may have had, in some cases, worse cases of the virus, they didn't end up in the in the end with worse death rates. And so I believe... They, they, I'm sorry, done, they did or did not, you said? So the way that it was set up in places like Florida, places like Texas, sometimes they had outbreaks 
connected to public schools because they didn't necessarily follow the masking. But in the law, when you look at the overall state death rates, the death rates per capita, it doesn't stand out to see those states. They don't have a clear correlation between open schools and more cases of virus, more people dying from the virus. So all said and done, we could have prioritized schools for opening Mm. sooner. So a state like California, uh, which had very strict lockdown protocols and was one of these states that uh, delayed reopening in a lot of the larger cities, the numbers weren't significantly better in terms of deaths, at least not COVID deaths that could be traced to public schools. Um, They weren't significantly better than in a state like Florida, which took a much more liberal attitude. That's exactly right. And that's why all of us who look at this situation need to have some humility, Mm -hmm. right? Because this virus kept changing and it, it really outwitted so many of our attempts to stop it. Why, why did so many uh, experts, and, and I think people were very well-intentioned. I don't, I don't think anybody really wanted to keep schools closed and inconvenience children and inconvenience teachers. Why did so many public health officials and elected officials in particularly blue cities and blue states, why did they yeah. keep schools for as, uh, closed for as long as they did? I think schools really got caught up in a very complicated political, um, you know, alignment because it was the Republicans, it was the federal leadership, um, President Trump, who really called for reopening schools, but not necessarily with protections. And so that really became um, a very strong statement that a lot of people reacted against politically. They didn't they didn't listen to Trump. They didn't trust Trump. And then on the other side, you obviously had, you know, unions, you had um, many communities of color that were a lot more cautious, a lot more hesitant. And between those two polls, it was very few leaders. There's a few state leaders um, in uh, Rhode Island, Governor Raimondo and Governor Lamont in Connecticut, who really stood up to their schools, their schools leadership and said, yes, we're going to do this. But so many other places, people were kind of caught in the middle. And in the mushy middle, that's where a lot of kids really got let down. And now that that's really Disappointing. We're talking with uh, Anya Kamenetz. She's the author of the book, uh, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. So it it was a combination of one, because Trump said it, uh, his political adversaries didn't want to go along with it. And also the the strength in a lot of communities, New York, for instance, of the teachers union not wanting to reopen prematurely. Yeah, I mean, New York is an interesting case because of the top 10 biggest uh, school districts in blue blue cities, um, we really were stronger. I'm in New York. We really were stronger in terms of saying we were going to open, trying really hard to reopen. And yet when all was said and done, we delayed opening twice in the fall of 2020. Mm. We shut down in November 2020. And only about a third of the kids actually came back to school because it was so confusing and it wasn't really meeting the needs of families. I think... You look at um, every aspect of society, crime, drug use, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, uh, many different financial aspects of uh, of society. It seems like the pandemic and the lockdowns were bad for everybody, bad for the whole country, especially, you know, adults in a lot of different communities. Why was the pandemic particularly harmful for children? Yeah, that's a great question. So schools are a major piece of social infrastructure for families. They feed 30 million kids, right? So when schools shut down, uh, many, many kids actually went hungry in the first couple of months. 
And without the structure of school, the safe place to be during the day, a lot of kids were in physical danger. And they were without their um, access to their their services that they needed. Kids, you know, the 14% of kids who had disabilities weren't getting those services, that, that therapy and uh, that intervention. That was really, really difficult. And then Obviously, besides the academic struggles, we saw that a lot of kids experienced a loss of meaning and hope and social connection that's leading to what um, pediatricians call, you know, a, an emergency, which is uh, child mental health. Well, one of the things that we heard reported at the time was that there were fewer instances of child abuse being reported, uh, not because there were fewer children being abused, but because there weren't teachers or adults in school in a position to observe a lot of the warning signs of child abuse. How big a problem was that? Well, it's a really, really difficult question because, um, yes, I think that there is, you know, it, the way that child abuse is, first of all, reported in our society is extremely complex. We have all of these mandatory reporters, and yet most of the families that get flagged for social services, it's really because of neglect, which is oftentimes an offshoot of poverty. So we have to think about why is it so much harder to help a family, give that family the help they need versus remove a child. That said, there's certainly reason to be concerned about the amount of gun violence that's increased in communities as well as in homes. And one of the um, scary anecdotes that I reported on um, in the book is a, a young child from a very large family of eight siblings in St. Louis. And when schools and daycares were closed, he wandered away from his home and climbed into a window of a vacant building and was shot in the leg. Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just uh, it's just terrible. Now, um, as far as the social aspect of school goes, now we've seen the corporate environment, the business world move increasingly into a remote communication era. A lot of businesses are still either fully remote or partially remote. Things that were routinely in person, staff meetings are routinely done by Zoom, a lot of folks may say, well, look, uh, if um, if adults are moving in this direction, maybe it's not the worst idea in the world for children to get acclimated to things like remote learning and uh, connecting with students and teachers and guidance counselors and whomever in a remote environment. Why is that social aspect of schools interacting with, with peers and other adults in person? Why is that so important? And why did that play such a deleterious role in child development over the lockdown? Yeah, that's such a great question. So, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I think that software has a role to play in kids' learning. I think that for high school kids, for example, picking up a few credits online while they also do internships and, and work in the community can be great. But Overall, the way that kids learn is social. They learn through relationships, their relationships with peers and with caring adults. And that's what people felt so cut off from, and it was so detrimental. I also want to put out a word to this, the physical aspects of learning. I mean, our kids, um, when they're developing, they really need to move around. And the enforced physical um, inactivity was really, really awful. And we saw um, a giant increase, a 77% increase recently reported in type 2 diabetes for young kids. Um, in the first year of the, of the pandemic. And I think that's really tied to the fact that we weren't giving kids their typical outlets, even just walking to school. You write in the uh, chapter on the book in uh, that concerns mental health and children's mental health specifically, that you could have written about that at any point in the book, 
but there's some evidence of a tipping point in child mental health after we passed six solid months of the pandemic and after we started to leave the relatively lower case numbers of the summer behind. And it really set in for young people that another disrupted school year was ahead. What what happened at the six month mark and uh, what did all this mean for child mental health? Yeah, I mean, I just heard from a lot of people that heading into the second school year was when it really started to sink in. This was not going to be um, a one and done. And, you know, one of the kids um, I spoke with was a 10 year old in Oklahoma who was like, you know, I can get through this year, but I can't do it again next year. And it was that loss of sort of hope in the future that really made it hard on kids. But honestly, I have to say that kids' mental health has deteriorated throughout the last school year and and even uh, still today as it starts to sink in just what happened, what they lost and what they might never get back. So I'm I'm still hearing from kids, and I heard Mm. from one of the families in the book um, recently that that the child's mental health has continued to deteriorate even after we we stopped talking. And and that means a lot more than just uh, uh, children are feeling blue. That leads to things that are very serious, like clinical depression, suicide, and uh, eating disorders, and I imagine a lot of other uh, very negative effects on a child's behavior, right? Yeah, you named a lot of the really big ones. Um, certainly anxiety, um, you know, kind of crippling anxiety and, and social anxiety. So we're seeing also with kids coming back to school that they don't have the same tools for interacting with their peers. They're kind of, um, you know, behind in their social development. And that's something that's, you know, it's going to take time. It, it's not like this is all remediable. Uh, kids are, you know, very responsive to mental health intervention, but um, definitely needs to be caught early. What does that mean for drug and alcohol use among young people that dealt with the mental health effects of the shutdown? So in the early days of lockdown, um, kids didn't have as much access to drugs and alcohol, so we didn't see those kinds of trends. I think the addiction um, potential is definitely there and it's something we expect to see developing, especially since, you know, nationwide there's been um, an overdose crisis, right, with fentanyl. There's also been increased drinking that a lot of adults, including parents, reported. So um, the idea that this is going to spill over into youth is, is very, very present. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Anya uh, Kamenetz. She is the author of the book, The Stolen Year, How COVID uh, Changed Children's Lives. Anya, in the book, you profile a boy with autism in San Francisco. What is the pandemic and what are the lockdowns like for somebody, a young person suffering with something like autism during the pandemic? I mean, autism has a lot of different manifestations for Jonah. Um, being on a screen was really disastrous for him. And there's a lot of kids with autism and ADHD, which he also had, that have a lot of trouble getting off the screens in normal times. And so to put school on a screen um, was just inviting him to become obsessed with YouTube, with video games, and honestly becoming violent and explosive when his parents tried to get him to focus on school itself. So it really became a daily battle of of violent outbursts, of tantrums, and of tears. Um, And you know, so, so hard for his entire family to try to remain positive when uh, nothing that he enjoyed in his life was available to him anymore. It's certainly not inconceivable to me, and I think a lot of folks, that if you're a child that is from a a wealthier family or an upper-middle-class family, you might have more experience dealing with high-end electronic devices than someone that's on a a lower socioeconomic rung, and maybe that makes using some of the technology that's necessary for remote learning more difficult and maybe more of a learning curve there. 
were poorer families having a tougher time with remote learning and all the aspects of the lockdown because they weren't as equipped with the the technological tools necessary for it? Absolutely. Both in cities and in rural areas, there was a lack of broadband and a lack of equipment. I mean, this is an area where schools definitely worked hard to try to step to step up and give out those hotspots and those laptops, um, oftentimes, you know, without a lot of help. But there were still um, many, many times where um, families were not able to sign on. There's a recent report that just came out showing chronic absenteeism, um, meaning being gone more than 10 percent of the time, was at 70 percent. That's seven out of 10 kids in Detroit in the 2020-2021 school year. And most of the time, four, four out of 10 of the time, the family said it was computer problems. Mm. We couldn't get online because we had computer problems. And that was you know, well into the full school year of the pandemic. In cities like New York, I know it's not unusual for many of the children in public schools to get both breakfast and lunch in school for free. And a lot of proponents of those programs have said that's been a game changer in terms of reducing child hunger. And uh, with nobody in school, I would think it was a lot more difficult for those children to get breakfast and lunch. What sort of effect did these lockdowns have on hunger? This is really shocking. So hunger researchers told me that the number of families who said my child's not getting enough to eat, my child's going to bed hungry, was at levels that they as researchers have never seen before. This is in April and May 2020. Um, You know, 17.5% of families of young children saying my child's not getting enough to eat. Typically, families starve themselves. They skip meals so that their kids have enough to eat. And I just heard from parents who were spending hours standing in line at food pantries, both in New York and in San Francisco. I talked to them and uh, also in D.C. um, organizing food giveaways. And you could spend your whole day doing that and still not have enough. And that was really the acute nature of this crisis. And, you know, that has lingering effects. Hunger Mm -hmm. has lingering effects mentally and as well as physically on kids, even when it doesn't last that long. What did families, I remember when I was a public school student in New York as a child, both of my parents worked and whenever there would be snow, I would be praying for a snow day and both of my parents <laughs> would be praying that there was no snow day because they wouldn't know what to do in terms of child care if I wasn't in school all day. I have to think there's a lot of public school parents all over the country that are similarly situated. What did people that relied on schools for child care do all of a sudden when that lifeline was cut off? Yeah, I mean, they did a lot of things, right? So if they were lucky enough to have a, a, a grandparent, a family member to combine households, there were a lot of people that did that. Obviously, we know if you were able to work from home, you had the classic kid busting in in your Zoom meeting or, or kid sitting uh, on the laptop or on the, the screens all day while you tried to work. Um, for families that had essential jobs, they had a much harder time. And that's why, um, you know, again, I, I profiled Heather in St. Louis, who was actually admitted that she locked the door on her kids. That was what she had to resort to wow. to get to her job at a homeless shelter. And wow. we just we don't want to see that happening in the United States. No, ab- absolutely not. So um, given your your chronicling of everything that went on here, uh, the education problems, the child care problems, the hunger problems, uh, every aspect, mental health, every aspect of youth development that was not just put on hold for a year, but uh, significantly impacted far beyond uh, the the stolen year. 
Um, through the prism of hindsight, what should our leaders have done? What should we have done as a country? And for the next pandemic, whether it's a year from now, 10 years from now, or 100 years from now, what should future leaders do when they're faced with a, a similarly serious pandemic? So this pandemic was unique in the way that it was so much milder for kids, right? So if we were faced with a pandemic like polio that was basically affecting kids first and foremost, you might go back and do some of the same restrictions. But given the risk profile similar to COVID-19, we really needed everyone in society to say, you know what, we're going to make the sacrifice on the business side. We're going to close bars. We're going to close restaurants so that schools can stay open, so that childcare can stay open, so that kids never again get deprived of these basic services that they need so much. Um, in um, Reason Magazine, which is obviously a, a very libertarian magazine, they did a review of your book, which was mostly positive, I, I think, because it fits with a lot of the libertarian agenda, which is uh, that everything should have stayed open this entire time. They do take issue a little bit with you um, not holding anyone responsible. In your view, is that a fair criticism? Do you think um, Americans have a right to hold the leaders that made these decisions to keep schools closed responsible and view them negatively because of their actions? Um, I think people always have a right to hold their elected officials accountable. The point that I was trying to make in the book is that schools are a very complex institution and it takes literally millions of people to keep them open. And so it's not a simple story. So the idea that Trump, you know, Trump is not the person responsible for closing schools. He called for opening schools. He didn't give them the resources that they needed. Our mayor in New York City, Bill de Blasio, he called for opening schools, but he was not able to accomplish that goal. Um, Teachers, you know, many of whom protested schools opening, but when schools opened, they went to work anyway. So I I just don't see a simple narrative or a simple Mm. easy villain. And if I had, I would have pointed the finger at them, but I just don't see it that way. Uh, Lastly, Anya, and um, I want to encourage people to check out this book, The, uh, The Stolen Year. One of the issues that also became very politicized, even once schools were reopened, was the issue of uh, of masking, uh, particularly for students. Some people complained that uh, this hurt everything from uh, speech pathology to uh, teaching students how to read facial expressions and that the science in terms of uh, uh, child transmission of the disease while masked or unmasked, was um, not necessarily definitive in terms of making a case for why children should have been masked. Uh, What's your take on masking in schools, particularly among children? I think that it changed because the virus changed and because we got vaccines. So when when we went back to school in 2020, masking absolutely made a lot of sense. Um, And as the virus mutated, it became so much more transmissible. Cloth masks really weren't doing very much. The surgical masks even weren't doing that much. And so we were faced with a choice, which is, do we move up to the KF94s? Do we try to put every single kid in a surgical mask and run our schools like a hospital ward? Or do we try to restore some normalcy, given that almost all of our kids have had COVID already and we do have vaccines available? And I think that I'm not one, you know, public health experts who were honest about it moved in their position because, you know, the other simple calculus was, this is a third school year that we're heading into. Are we going to keep kids masked forever? My child's in kindergarten. You know, she took off her mask in April. That was the first time she'd mm. gone to school without a mask on. So, you know, 
again, this is a, a situation that's complicated. It changes, and people who are honest about it and look at the data need to update their positions as well. Uh, you know, one of the thing, the reason, one of the reasons I ask is because Philadelphia is planning to have mandatory masks at the beginning of their school year, and the parents yeah. are up in arms. The school boards in Philadelphia are getting an air an earful. From uh, yeah. from parents that say this kind of a policy to start the school year is totally out of touch. It sounds like you might agree with those parents. Well, I sympathize with parents who feel that their children are the only ones being subjected to these guidelines. You know, if you can go to a sporting event or a mall in Philadelphia without a mask on or a restaurant or a bar, right. why is it that our little kids in school are the only ones that have to do this? Well, Anya, I want to commend you on uh, just a tremendously researched book and uh, not only a book that's really well researched, but uh, a book that really does a tremendous job putting a human face on the cost of uh, the lockdowns that we all endured uh, over the course of the COVID pandemic. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for being on with us at a tough hour. Appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for your interest. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.